Okay, let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, I'm glad um, that we're together again. It's good to see everybody. Um, the title of Lewis's um, book is Abolition of Man. So I think you've heard me speak pretty strongly about dangers that we're facing and I don't think of myself as being alarmist. But the title of the book is Abolition of Man and I see it as a real, real danger. I hope to make that clear over the course of the evening. So um, we're on the edge of a war. It's quiet in some ways. It's, it reminds me of the t pre-Hitler times when people were at peace. We just came out of a war. Nobody wanted war. But we were already in one. And because we didn't go into it, we lost millions of lives that could have been spared. There's a great danger in our culture today because we are so comfortable, so secure. It makes it easier to stay comfortable. But there are serious problems in our cultures and in ourselves. So um, I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing. It's uncovering, it's unmasking a lot of these hidden things um, that everybody is staying with us the way they are is certainly an inspiration to me, um, to Suzanne. Give us courage to stand up. Um, you've called us to you. Um, you ask us to die to ourselves, to bear a cross. Um, to be bold and humble. Um, the example of our writers, Pope John Paul, Benedict, now Lewis, and shortly Chesterton, were all brave people. Um, Chesterton stood alone in, in England. He converted. Um, the whole English world was shocked because he was one of the most influential, the, one of the most amazing men in his time. He was cheerful, um, he had courage, he never lost it, um, was so clear-sighted in speaking to the wrongs. Give us the courage to do the same. We're here um, as a part of our work with our church, so help us to find a strength in it and um, bring it to our church where it's needed and to our world. Um, we offer, um, um, let those of you who are in prayer send them to us, please. Keep Suzanne and me in your prayers. The two of us have been hobbling around for the last two weeks. She's in a brace, I'm gonna be in a cast. Um, pray for us, please. Um, we offer these prayers to you, Christ our Lord. Amen. I think instead of going ahead, can you hear me okay when I'm off the mic? Can you hear me okay? Because um, I want to, I'm fine standing up, but I, the doctor was pretty clear today that he wanted me to <laughs> stay up my feet. Um, instead of going ahead, because we've been away for a while, I'm going to go back and reread, pick up where we were last time. So it'll bring us up to where we were and then go forward. Um, okay. <clears throat> Remember, um, Hopkins is at home. He's, um, he's was so moved by the death of these five nuns that he wrote this poem. He'd been writing poetry for some time. He reached a point when he became a priest of 
um, actually thinking about destroying all the poetry he wrote because he thought it would interfere with his calling. Um, one of his superiors um, persuaded him not to do that and he ended up being one of the greatest poets in the English language. What he's done with English is truly amazing. This was a turning point poem for him. Can you guys turn your speaker off, John? I think it's you, I'm not sure. Um, Mike, can you monitor that to see if, if um, somebody else is coming on? I'm not sure. It's too loud for the people online. They just turn their sound down on there. Just turn your sound down, John. Um, that should help. Um, you know that in the first part of the record of Deutschland, he's, he's describing the power of God in the universe and the dread with which he's been left because of God's power. God made him, he can unmake him. I think he feels the danger of that more deeply because he's a priest. He knows that um, his sins will be graver because of his calling than they would be for somebody else. So the first part is, is something of a laying out of, the, of his own situation and the presence of God in the world. It's, it's a large, sort of broad philosophic presentation. Of, but then he, he, he goes to the sisters and what actually happened, and that's where we were. And you remember that the storm had um, dashed them against the, um, the east coast of London, and they were on rocks and they couldn't move, and the storm was having its way. Um, people were dying. There was that description of the man dangling in the, in the mast, which was pretty amazing. Um, and then he reached that point where he said, what was she doing when she called out, Christ, Christ? Um, that, that's the climax of the poem. That's where we were going to pick up tonight, but I'm going to put it off. I'm going to put it off because it's an amazing climax. Something happens with him that brings him and the sister together. Even though they're separated by time now, he's with her for a moment. And something amazing happens in that moment when he says, what was she calling out for? Why? Um, did she call to him expecting a reward? Did she call to him because she was worn out? Because she was threatened by death? Yeah? I mean, those are typically the things that we do when we're in trouble. Um, and he's um, struggling with each one of those possibilities and explores the meaning of each one of them. And then he comes to something in some ways greater than all of those, okay? Um, but I, I think I'm gonna just wait until next week because we haven't been together. Because I wanna, I wanna try to prepare um, for that climax. He's describing the struggle of those on board to try to survive this storm. Um, stanza 17. They fought with God's cold and they could not and fell to the deck, crushed them or water and drowned them or rolled with a sea romp over the wreck. Notice romp. It's like that dandled. Remember dandled? The soldier was being dandled. It's like a child. This is a, this is a calamity by earthly standards. 
The ship's going down, people are dying. And he uses words like that with the sea romp over the wreck. Night roared with a heartbreak hearing, a heart broke rabble, the woman's wailing, the crying of child without check. Till a lioness arose, breasting the babble, the prophetess towered in the tumult, a virginal tongue told, told like the telling of bells in a tower. Ah, touched in your bower of bone, are you? Turn for an exquisite smart, have you? Make words break for me here all alone, do you? Mother of being in me, heart. Oh, unteachably after evil, but uttering truth. Why tears? Is it tears? Such a melting, a madrigal start. Never eldering revel in river of youth. What can it be, this glee, the good you have there of your own? I love this stanza, personally, this stanza, I've always loved it. Ah, touched in your bower. Sometimes when we're struggling, I can remember once when I was an adolescent and I got the news from a friend that her um, father had died and um, passed it on. And looking back on it, I'm just, sometimes when we do a noble thing, I don't, I'm not sure how many of us are aware that there may be something to it that's feeding our own egos. It's like saying, oh, see how good you are, you know, in those moments. I have such a, here Hopkins is going, oh, you've got such a sensitive heart. Look how, look how feelingful you are. So right at this moment, as he's approaching the climax, he's scolding himself. There's a scorn. Um, because the question is, where is our heart? Is it on Christ? Is it on the cross? Is it for us? Where is it? So, as he recalls the crisis of the woman, we sense that he's undergoing a real spiritual crisis for himself. Why am I here? Why am I writing this poem? Sister, a, call, sister, a sister calling a master, her master and mine. And the inboard seas run swirling and hauling, the rash smart sloggering brine blinds her. But she that weathers sees one thing, one. She has one thing calling her. Has one fetch in her. She rears herself to divine ears and the call of the tall nun. To the men in the tops and the tackle rode over the storms brawling. She was first of a five and came of a coiffed sisterhood. O Deutschland, double a desperate name, O worldwide of its good. But Gertrude Lilly and Luther are two of a town, Christ Lilly and beast of the waste wood. From life's dawn it is drawn down, Abel is Cain's brother, and breasts they have sucked the same. Cain and Abel came from the same breast. Very often we can be in a family and somebody in the family turns. We know these things. I mean, they're a part of our lives. They're with our children, with us. He's meditating on the mystery of the cross. Um, why are some people allowed to suffer more? And how many of those people, because of their suffering, turn from Christ? That mystery. Um, I've suggested a number of times that, um, that the cross is a grace. It's hard to remember that because who, who of us wants to suffer? Why did he choose those 12 men? Why does he choose any of us? Why does he allow any of us to suffer? Um, from the perspective of our church, we should be seeing it as a grace. 
we don't want it, most of us, I think. But we become better people. We, we find out who we are. Um, so he's meditating on this um, and um, looking at her background and her calling. And then he, he, it's an apostrophe, he calls to the Dutchland. A double a desperate name. Remember, the Dutchland means people. It also means Germany, and it's the name of the ship. I think we went over this. The ship is going down. For, for Hopkins, that double meaning, it's like the double meaning of Christ. Christ brings the grace present. He makes grace present. But in the making of that presence, the grace present, very often an evil is called up. He was betrayed. Peter betrayed him. Judas betrayed him. So very often when, when we perform a virtuous act, we find some betrayal somewhere around us. And I suggested it's, it's worth thinking that when he calls out the Dutchland, remember, it means the people and Germany, the ship is going down. I think what he has on his mind is, in this moment, Germany is losing itself. It was the cause of those nuns' death. The, the, um, the German people under Bismarck was trying to purify Germany, the race, so they were getting rid of Catholic. The irony of this, I'm not, I don't know my history that well, but I know it this well, Hitler's on, on Bismarck's tails. He's coming right after him. Bismarck is trying to clean up Germany, purify it. He's getting rid of Catholics. Um, so in, in Hopkins' mind, when he describes the Deutschland going down, I think he sees it as a symbol, an image of something spiritually being lost in Germany. That is losing its identity. And we'll see at the end of the poem, he has that same feeling about England. He will end the poem with a prayer calling England back to its Catholic roots. So there's this double meaning. It was there in, in Gertrude and Luther because the two of them came from the same town. He's calling Luther a beast and um, Gertrude a lily, just like Cain and Abel. So there's always this mystery of, of um, evil close to graces. Loathe for love, men knew in them, banned by the land of their birth. Rhine refused them, Thames would ruin them. Surf, snow, river, and earth gnashed, but thou art above, thou Orion of light, the bright star. Thy unchanceling poised palms were weighing the worth, thou martyr, master. In thy sight storm flakes were scroll-leaved flowers, lily showers, sweet heaven was a strew in them. This is a storm. It's raging. People are dying. And look at his description. Storm flakes were scroll-leaved flowers, lily showers, sweet heaven was a strew in them. God's grace is at work in that moment. How many see it? I've asked this question over and over again in our, you know, where are we? Um, what do we see? Are we, are we really seeing through service to something deeper? Five, the finding and sake and cipher of suffering Christ. Remember, five Christ, five wounds, the stigmata. Mark the mark of man's make and the word of its sacrifice. But he scores in scarlet himself on his own bespoken. Christ impresses himself on us through our suffering. Remember Paul's words constantly are. He, he, 
he boasts, that's his word, he boasts in his afflictions. He boasts in his afflictions because he knows it's in our afflictions that we're tested and um, even in our sins, if we just endure, hope, keep moving, we get closer and closer to Christ. He scores in it scarlet himself on his own bespoken before time taken, dearest prized and priced, cost Christ his life, stigma, signal, sank full token for lettering of the lamb's fleece, rutting of the rose flake. Joy fall to thee, Father Francis, drawn to the life that died with the gnarls of the nails in thee, niche of the lance, his love, his love skate crucified, and seal of his seraph arrival. And these thy daughters and five livid and leave flavor and pride are sisterly sealed in wild waters to bathe in his fall gold mercies, to breathe in his all fire glances. God, he finds nothing but beauty in this moment. The Franciscan nuns, I mean, he goes back to Francis recalling his stigmata that he had the five, he wanted to be crucified with Christ. Away in the lovable west on a pastoral forehead of Wales, I was under a roof here, I was at rest, and they the prey of the gales. She to the black about air, to the breaker, the thickly falling flakes, to the throng that catches and quails, was calling, O Christ, Christ, come quickly. The cross to her she calls, Christ to her, christens her wild worst best. The majesty, what did she mean? Breathe, arch, an original breath. Is it love in her of the being as her lover had been? Breathe, body of lovely death. They were else-minded then altogether. The men woke thee with a, we are perishing in the weather of Gethsemane. Or is it that she cried for the crown then, the keener to come at the comfort for feeling the combating keen? <laughs> she calling Christ because she wants this ordeal over? What's, what's motivating it? What's in her heart? That's where we were last time. That's where we're leaving off tonight. I'm giving you a quiz on the next five stanzas. What's the meaning of the climax? <laughs> um... like I'm always ready to trip over wires. Um, okay, let's... I've got to sit down. Oh, thanks. No, I'm going to go up here. Or actually, will that work? I like it better when I don't have this thing in front of me. But I'm going to follow my wife's advice here. You know how often I do that. Okay. Um, let's start. A couple of things tonight. One is... Um, one is I, um, I dropped the outline um, in the, our file, our, our folder. And I, um, I wrote Ellie, but it was probably too late, so we didn't get a copy here. But you can get a copy online. I think it's a, it'll help. It's a good outline. Um, so go to the site. You all know how to get there. 
and check out the outline. I've included in that, in you know, it's under the uh, apologetics, under the modern. Um, I've included in the C.S. Lewis site um, an essay that he wrote called, um, um, God, sorry, I'm not even gonna have it here. The Humanitarian Theory of Justice. Lewis wrote this essay, I'd, I'd like to do it um, as soon as we finish abolition before we go into orthodoxy because um, it goes more directly to a part of the world we're all involved in. He's, he's making an argument that the, the scientific basis of therapy in the modern world to cure people through therapy, through psychiatric therapy and counseling, is actually less merciful than the humanitarian principle that it replaced. Up until modern times, the, the belief under which we all operated was justice and mercy. If you did something, um, you merited, you deserved punishment. So the principle at work was merit or desert. Is that clear? Desert. It's what we deserve. So that desert principle, merit principle, defined our lives. So everybody following? If, there, if you have a question, ask it here. And then the sciences came along and said that that principle was inhuman, insensitive, cruel. And it took the possession, position that therapy was more humane. And that's the belief system that we've been under for century and a half, two centuries now, more and more today. Although, although I, think, I think finally Freud's beginning to be seriously questioned, and I'm glad for that personally myself. But, um, when he wrote his essay, The Humanitarian Theory of Justice, um, nobody would publish it in England. The publishers refused to publish it. That's how um, controversial it was. So I've included that in our file, the humanitarian theory, it's several pages. He's, he's arguing that that theory, even though it involved um, punishment, retrib retributive justice for a crime, but as your children act up, you put them in timeout. It's a, it's a, that's a mild punishment, but it's a punishment. You're not saying, um, I, I shouldn't do this. You're not, no, I'm, you're not saying to the child, um, I know the psychological history of your parents has hurt you. Um, and um, we understand, so do everything you can to overcome that and we'll be, I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't do that. When, when we did this, just so you know, just because I, I don't want to give the wrong impression here. When we did uh, that essay in St. Francis and Abolition of Man, we, we did King Lear afterwards. Have we done, we've done, yeah. Because if you remember in King Lear, what Kent is doing with his father, wait, by the way, retributive justice is deeply a part of that play. People do bad things and they're not gonna be dissuaded by the threat of punishment. They do them anyway, and they're gonna suffer for them. But in the center of that play, 
one of its one of the themes of which is retributive justice is what you'd call a therapeutic action what Kent does with his father if you remember he puts on a disguise and takes his father to Dover Cliffs because his father is suicidal and he puts on a play to help him so one of the beauties of Shakespeare saw all of this I mean, there, there wasn't anything you didn't see 500 years before all this developed. We did um, All's Well That Ends Well, and we saw Helena was already in a world in which, remember, Paroli said, the age of miracles is past. The scientific world was upon us. Shakespeare knew that. He knew the implications of it, so he could present a scene like that where Kent takes on a therapeutic role for the sake of his father. So it's, it's in Shakespeare, they're not too contradictory things. They're not too antinomous. They're not antinomies. They, they don't oppose each other. You can bring them together. Okay. So, wait one second, Doc. So, over the next couple of weeks, I'd, if you would, pick up that, because I'd like to read, I'd like to go over that essay with you, because it speaks so directly to our age. C.S. Lewis is going to do it here indirectly in this one, but indirectly. And that essay is going to take it on directly. So read that, okay. Um, yeah, Doc. I don't think or Ed, sorry, Edgar, sorry, sorry, yeah, thanks. Who is Edgar? God, it's getting worse and worse. It was Edgar, okay? The second thing I wanted to take a minute with before we started um, is the Trinity. It was Trinity Sunday a while ago, and, um, I was looking forward to having a few minutes with you just because it was Trinity Sunday, but you know that's a, um, something dear to my heart. And even though it doesn't touch directly on Lewis, I want to touch on it here for a moment because it's timely. We've talked about the Trinity a number of times. I, I don't want to go into this at length, but I want to give you two thoughts to keep in your mind because I, I'm not aware that priests will typically do this sort of thing but I'd like you to carry this with you. You know that I've said lots of times that um, we are made in the image of God, which means, unlike anybody who's Jewish or Islamic, we are Trinitarian, we are communal by nature. The end for us, the end for us, the beginning and the end, is the indwelling of the Trinity. The Son indwelt with the Father and Spirit, yeah? They were perfectly one with each other. The father conceived of himself. He, his thought of himself is his son. That's his image. His son is co-eternal. Cannot be other because the father is eternal. He conceives him. The spirit between them is the love between them. That's the trinity in a nutshell. I hope you can let it go at that. That's the trinity. Okay. You know that the son, the father asked the son, the son came down to take on our nature um, um, to atone for our sin. The biblical passage is the father so loved his children that he sent his only begotten son. Okay? Christ takes on our nature and we see Christ and we hear about the father and the spirit but we often don't put them together. Okay? But I've maintained often in this group that there's nothing nothing, nothing that exists in the world that isn't marked by a trinity. 
function. Thomas's argument, going back to St. Augustine, was there can be nothing in the world that doesn't have a mode, an order, a mode, an order, and a form. Those three things have to be present in every, every existing thing. I don't want to go into that, it's too scholastic, but it's their way of showing that the Trinity is present everywhere. Nothing can exist without it. And you know from one of Hopkins' poems that everything speaks Christ. Christ is the Word, He's the maker of everything, He's present. So. I want to offer two thoughts on the Trinity to try to make this concrete because I, abstractions drive me nuts. When people start talking in abstractions, I want to either argue or go away. But um, And the Trinity, it's difficult to talk about the Trinity in any other way except abstractions. Yeah. I want you to give these two things some thought. I've used this example before. Every time we sit down to write a paper. I know you're not students, but you could write a letter, yeah? You could write a letter to a daughter or a son or write a letter to a lawyer or a legislator. Um, you know that in the writing of that letter, very often you'll say, that's not quite what I meant. And you'll correct it until you get it right. So you have an idea in your head, some light, some light. We're not angels, we don't see as angels. That idea, that light, will never get clear to us until it's embodied in words. Until it's incarnated. Because we are incarnated, we are not angels, we're not beasts. That idea will not become real until we see it. I'm trusting you all know this, right? Because we turn in papers when we were in high school or college and the, the teacher would give back and say F or B or you know whatever we got. Because it was well written. We hear those terms, we never say well incarnated, but that's what's going on. Okay? We've got an idea, we write to find out what it is. We won't know until it's worded, until it's down, until we say it. Do we go into our conversations, sometimes difficult conversations with others, knowing exactly what we're going to say all the time? And don't we find under the movement of the Spirit in a conversation that sometimes we say something we hadn't planned on saying, but it was the right thing to say, or maybe sometimes the wrong thing to say? So that idea, that light, is the Father. The incarnation of it is the Son. The power with which the two of those come together in that Note, that paper, that talk, is the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In that note. Now I'm trusting everybody will see that. That's a commonplace thing, yeah? No? I mean, we do it all the time, right? Wait, here, let me put it differently. Could we ever do it without the Father, without an idea? No. Could we ever do it without incarnating it, embodying it in a word? No. Could we do it without a spirit? No. All three are present. By the way, that's why it's so hard often to write poetry, if any of you have tried. Or it's why it's hard to write a letter about something we care about. Don't we struggle with those things? So, the Trinity is never not with us. Some people get focused on an idea, which means they're father-heavy. Some people get focused on the spirit and they're, what's the word in the fundamentalist, the, the enthusiastic, the charismatic, charismatic. 
That's spirit heavy. Sometimes they're incommunicable. I mean, what they're saying, you, right? The spirit so moves them, they're, they're, they get away from the articulations of the word. And it gets fuzzy. Paul warned against that. He was just being a good Trinitarian scholar, theologian, when he said that. Yeah? He said, be on guard against that. He never said, don't do it. He said, just be careful. Are you all following? You can be heavy in the Father. You can be heavy in the Spirit. But the call for us always is to incarnate, to give words to what we're doing. Yeah? So the Trinity is always here. Wait just one minute, Mary. I'm almost, sorry, I'm almost done. I've not counted the times. Can you recall a Mass that didn't begin with a, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or end with a, a blessing, Father? Can you begin? And multiple times during the Mass, the Lord's Prayer, repeatedly during the Mass, we cross ourselves with a sign of the Trinity, Father. Right? Throughout the Mass. Okay, here's where I'm going. So, but that's verbally. That's verbally. I want to go to something concrete, just like my Trinity illustration of writing a paper. I hope that was concrete and ordinary. All of you should be able to identify with that, because all of us, I can remember getting F's on papers. <laughs> and I can remember getting A's, but all of us, I'm sure, yeah? Here's where I, I just wish priests would go here. At the moment of the consecration, at the most important time of the Mass, the Father's there. He is like the idea in our mind. He is unapproachable light. Can we see the Father? No. The lights, too, we're not, we're incarnate. We're in a fallen world. We cannot see him. It's unapproachable light. When we die, the, one of the things we hope to do is look on his face. It was the one thing that the Jews most longed for. So many of the Psalms say, I want to see your face. Can we see the Father's face in the Mass at the moment of consecration? Absolutely not. It's unapproachable light. We can't see it. Can we see Christ? Absolutely yes. He incarnates in that moment. That piece of wafer becomes his real presence. Christ went to eternity so that as the infinite Son in our body, he could feed us infinitely like the multiplication of the fishes. So he can feed infinitely when we receive the host and the wine. We're receiving him. That's our faith. The power with which that moment happens is the Spirit. The Spirit comes down to do it. How much of him do we carry when we receive Christ and the Father? Do we, do we really, are we aware in that moment that the Father is present, the Son is present, the Spirit's present, or that act could not take place. So right at the center of the Mass is the Trinity. It was Trinity Sunday, uh, two weeks ago, yeah, two weeks ago, it was Trinity Sunday. You know, it's hard for people to talk about Trinity because it's, it's one of the deepest mysteries of our faith. But I think it would help if we knew it's always there, do we see it? And one of the places where it's most important that we not miss it is the Eucharist. It's there all the time. S sorry, I just, I didn't want to lose Trinity Sunday. I, was, I thought we were going to meet and I wanted to say these things and I did not want to not say them because it's too important. So 
let me stop. That doesn't have anything to do with C.S. Lewis, except I don't believe he could have been as clear as he is if he did not have the Father and the Son. Anyway, let me stop. Mary, you had a question. I think so. I'm a little bit hesitant to commit, um, particularly with you, because I know it's going to happen if I miss here with you. Um, I think so, Mary. We incarnate in an act, we make it real, for sure. If, if there's a word that can't be spoken, we ought to wonder whether we're being Gnostic. And I'm saying that truthfully. Because very often it's, you know, I can remember when <laughs> Suzanne and I first began dating and I would write these notes to her on library cards. And I look back and I'm a little bit embarrassed, but, you know, there, aren't there times in your life when you, when you feel like you just can't quite find the words or, you know, the love you feel is so deep? But our whole call is to find the words. It may be I love you or, you know, or whatever it is, but... Let me stop. Any, any other comments on the Trinity or <laughs> sometimes I laugh to think of what you guys put up with you come here to talk about C.S. Lewis and this guy goes off his rock and someplace else and I can't believe there are no questions on the Trinity yeah go Okay, um, any more before we... I'm so glad you said that, Mary. I'm, I mean, I'm more than I can say. I, I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time when when we go to church and before mass people are saying rosaries there's some people that I know I, I, and I'm not they will say to our father in one breath our father in heaven hallowed be the name like, I'm not kidding I cannot I cannot I will not keep up with that person I will not I mean I go off and make a prayer of my own and try to do a penance <laughs> but, but I, I just find it hard myself to meditate when we're doing the rosary or the, the, our Father, because I and I think I'm sure I've said this to you guys before. I I've said it to my kids, and I encourage you: when you pray the Rosary, imagine Mary in front of you. Pick a statue you know, and always picture that statue luminous. Because a statue is just a how can how can you represent a luminous saintly figure like Mary? Imagine her, imagine Christ, because if you just go through the prayers and you don't imagine it, I just think it's harder to feel to, in your heart that 
you're there. But if you picture the person, I think there's an intimacy, you're there. I think that takes some courage and humility. It's easier to keep them at a distance. When you get them close to you, then you have to be more aware of all the things that you're not proud of in your life, you know, or whatever you're, you know. So I think it's, it is good to slow down and um, bring a spirit of reverence and Okay, let's start. Abolition of man. Um, um, what's brought us here? Why is this appropriate now? Um, at the center of C.S. Lewis's concern here in Abolition of Man is his con concern for our emotional life. You can't read this book and not be aware because he opens um, criticizing two men for what they do because what they do is it indirectly squashes emotions. It just takes the emotional life away. He'll make clear in the course of this work that the intellect leads. The intellect is the um, legislative power. We don't know what to feel if if we don't know what is. So, you know, it's important to know something so that we can direct our emotions that way or curb our emotions or do something with them. But at the center of this is his um, concern about what's going on emotionally because the theory that he's attacking is indirectly attacking emotions, doing away with them. That's the first thing just to hold on to. Um, the second is that you know um, in the last several weeks in our work with John Paul and Benedict that both of them are concerned to recover reason. Um, John Paul's not talking about faith, he's talking about faith and reason. And there's no question that re um, faith is the more important virtue, power, but he makes clear that faith without reason is crippled. There can be no faith without reason. How can anybody understand something enough to move towards Christ if they don't understand what's going on? If they can't read the Bible or they can't understand a person's words or... So our natural powers are the powers through which we move in our faith, grow in our faith. And it's important because our faith takes us to greater things. But the basis of it is nature, reason. Both men are addressing a world that is probably, I've made this point before, that is probably the most educated world that's ever existed in history. And we've reached a point in history where the greater numbers of people are educated um, by the sciences. Um, they are benchmarked for everything. But one of the results of that is that people think that reason is sufficient by itself and turn away from faith. So hordes, large numbers of people are moving away from the church. The, the numbers of nons, nuns, the people who have no belief, is increasing. Um, in the homily a week ago, the, the uh, deacon, was, I think it was his homily on the Trinity, gave a staggering figure. He said that 70% of Catholics today no longer believe in the real present. That is, it's, I mean, another way to put that more broadly is 70% of Catholics today don't believe in miracles. They're going through the motions. 
you know, they're just quickly crossing themselves, going in and out. And so both popes are speak, giving reason the emphasis they are because the world has given itself to reason. Now, here's where I want this to conclude, I mean, to, to land on this with some emphasis. Every one of the disorders that John Paul identified, he specified that long list, remember? Rationalism, nihilism, immanentism, relativism. Materialism. Sorry? Materialism. Materialism. Side, thank you. I, I, there's more, yeah, but... Okay, every one of those disorders was a product of reason, not faith. If they're a product of reason gone wrong, reason should be able to answer them, unless you're a Protestant and believe that reason is corrupt. Yes? Every one of those is a product of reason. If that's so, they're answerable to reason. The important thing is, can we recover our powers of reason in order to answer them? That's where we are. Okay? So it's no accident that, going back to Leo Paul in the First Vatican, that was his call to recover philosophy. That's where it all started. First Vatican, 1914, I can't remember the years. The turn of the century, Leo Paul, or I mean, sorry, Leo the Thirteenth, made a call to philosophy. Out of that came Etienne Gilson and, and uh, Jacques Maritain, two of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. That was a call to that was a call to help us recover our minds because everyone was losing them. The West had lost its mind. If you lose your mind, you lose your heart. So he's the one that first initiated that call. John Paul in Fide Ratio, writes Fide Ratio, is asking that we recover a sound philosophy and a theology to support our faith. And then Benedict writes Regensburg. And you know that the call in Regensburg was to fundamentalist Christians and Islam, because neither one of them acknowledges a logos in nature. A logos just means there's some intelligibility. St. Thomas would say the Trinity's there, it's intelligible. There's a reason at work there. It's at work. Um, if it weren't there, scientists would have nothing to do. Scientists only have do the work they do because there's some law, some intelligibility in nature. And they're working with it, to discover it, to work with it, yeah? So until recent times, it was always understood that there was a logos. And nature is intelligible. It means something. There's something there. Can we see it? Every one of the poems that I've read since we've begun was about some revelation, helping us to see something that we wouldn't have seen. Yeah? So both of them, both of the popes, all three of the popes, recognize that the mind's in trouble. We've lost our mind. If we don't recover it, our faith gets weakened. Yeah? So here we are now at abolition of man, and this is how dark it is. And I want to, I want to without being alarmist, although I'm going to be alarmist right now, the conclusion that Lewis will make here is that if we keep going the way we're going, if we allow teaching, teaching, because Teaching is the means by which young people are initiated into adulthood. God, I can't say this strongly enough. 
How else do we get there? Parents are teachers. Schools are teachers. If we don't do something with our teachers and we just go along with the way the kids are being <coughs> led today, formed, that is indoctrinated, they're going to be turned into something that's not human. That it's going to alter our nature. The end result of this is the abolition of man. He's alarmed because he sees that there are signs of things going on right now whose only end can be the destruction of ourselves. That, that who we are as creatures, as we know them, have taken them for granted to be, our, our identities, whatever, is going to be lost. There is no God. We have no identity. We can be fashioned to whatever the conditioners want to fashion us into. If they want a utopian world, they can make that. If they want to cancel culture, they can do that. If they want to change sex, they can do that. I'm saying this really, un this, is, this is so alarming to me. We, we, had, we went to war for, over slavery in the 19th century. It, it was a sin against reason. We made laws that went against God's laws. I've been harping on this. We're making laws right now that go against God's laws. They're worse than the laws in slavery. Can we continue to do this and not go to war or not? I don't, not, arrive at, not arrive at a point where we're dealing with some catastrophic end. Um, so Lewis wrote this in, I think, 43, in the 40s. He was already seeing, we're, we're not quite a century beyond, but we're close to a century beyond. And we're seeing, made real, uh, Mary, to use your, anti-incarnate. That what people are doing with the human body are radically altering it, its nature. That is in some ways going against the incarnation or God. So um, that may sound alarmist. I'm not saying anything any of us don't know, but that's his concern. Okay? So, abolition of man now has come at midpoint between Leo XIII's call and before Fide Orazio and Regensburg. So, he belongs in that tradition. Um, there's something happening. And the church is calling us to answer it. Okay. Let me stop before I turn to the book. Any, any questions about what we're doing? Was that alarmist enough? By the way, Suzanne and I are watching TV the other night. We watched the uh, Sniper. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's a painful, painful... It's a, it, I, I think it's a grace... I just think it's a grace. I'm, it's a violent, It's about war. It's one of the. It's not Schwarzenegger or Sylvester. You know, it's not that. It's a. It's a deeply, deeply human movie. And one of the amazing. It ends. Um, I can't give away movies. I can't do that. It ends. It ends in a way that makes you aware of. We came from California. It makes you aware of the difference between Texas and California. I'll just leave it that way. Sniper. It's a it's a grace. American sniper. It's Edgar 
It's Edgar and American Sniper. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that to her. <laughs> what are you going to say to Michael after a comment like that? <laughs> Do you see the look she just gave him? <laughs> Get that on picture. Get that on a. <laughs> okay. Let's turn to the um, before we before before we begin. You know that the um, epigram, epigram of the whole work, he takes a quote from Confucius at the very beginning, it's before his chapters, that goes, the master said. So this is from Confucius. He's, this is a Christian. This, this is, wait, by the way, this is so in keeping with um, Vatican II. In its call, in its call, for Catholicism to reach out to everything that's holy in every other religion, starting with the Jewish religion. That was an amazing, the, what's it called? Nostra, Nostra Eterni or something, Eterni. Our time. It was the call for the church to go out in love, um, in a dialogue, acknowledging everything that was holy in all other religions, beginning with Judaism. C.S. Lewis, before, years before that encyclical, is taking lines from the Tao, the, um, the Tra, I'm sure, not sure how to pronounce that, the Indian. And here from Confucius, the master said, he who sets to work on a different strand destroys the whole fabric. Okay? So that's the epigram and the epigram of Men Without Chest, the first chapter is, so he sent the word to slay. He sent the word, we're being asked to use words, which means using our reason. So he sent the word to slay and slew the little children. Um, let's take a look at the book, page 18. He begins by, um, expressing his gratitude to a, a book that was sent to him and he says that he has um, kind words for the teachers because they sent it but then he also says on page 17 at the same time I shall have nothing good to say of them here's a pretty predicament this like uh, Benedict this is a wonderful example of a man entering into an argument and keeping his cool yeah? Thank you for doing this. Um, at the same time, I have nothing good to say. <laughs> it's the very first page, so second page. Um, he begins by, and he calls, he calls the book the Green Book to protect it, and, um, and he calls the authors Gaius and Titius um, Roman. It's interesting that he would choose Roman, not Greek. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think that's because the Roman world was far more given to the common good. The Greek world, we've seen this with Achilles, and we've gone through it. You know, the Roman, Aeneas, the common good, Rome, the universal city, everybody's there. In their second chapter, guys, and um, Titius quote the well-known story of Coleridge at the waterfall. You remember that there were two tourists, 
One called it sublime, the other pretty. Coleridge endorsed the first one and, not, and he responded to the second one with disgust. So they're looking at this beautiful, sublime, stunning, awesome waterfall. One says sublime and the other one says pretty. <laughs> um, Gaius and Titius comment as follows. When the man said that is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying was really, I have feelings associated with my mind with the word sublime. Or shortly, I have sublime feelings. Here are a good many deep questions settled into a pretty summary fashion, but the authors are not yet finished. They say, this confusion is continually present in language as we use it. We appear to be saying something very important about something and actually we're only saying something about our own feelings. What's wrong with that? Anybody jump in here? I mean, he makes the argument, so you've read it, but I'd be glad for anybody to jump in because it's really important that we get this because this is our modern mindset and its effect on our emotions is real. What's wrong with what Gaius and Titius just said? Well, they're reducing everything to the experiential and the emotional, but there are objective truths out there that, that naturally and rightly do trigger emotions in us, but stand apart from those emotions. Yeah. Do you have a name for that? <laughs> yeah, what's, the, 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 your, what's you're describing, the tendency to do that? The tendency to experience an emotion? I don't want to, I don't want so to do what you just described. Something's merit. Wonder, reverence? Our, yes. Um. Here, sorry, let me do the, what she's describing is what today we would call the subjectivist theories of knowledge, that what's outside of us is only a projection of what's inside. So it, it undermines or does away with the objective world outside. It tends to debunk it, to diminish it. Now this is important because it goes not only, it goes not only to the world and God's creation and the belief that there are wonders in it, it has the effect, as, as Lewis, as the people say, we appear to be saying something very important about something and actually we're only saying Something about our own feeling, that only. But, so we, we seem to be saying something about here, out, you know, the value of something, when we're not. So what they're saying is, any predicates of value, any statements we make about something in the world that has value, a worth in itself, a worth deserving of a response, is not real. We're only, we're only saying something about our feelings. So not only are they taking away the objective world and whatever is there, they're also devaluing, um, minimizing, diminishing the value of our own emotions. It's only something inside. Now, stop and think about that. If we take away the wonder of the world, by what do we gauge our actions? And if there's nothing wonderful out there anymore, how can we have any feelings of wonder? And if we cease to wonder, what happens to us, our hearts? Aristotle, wonder's the beginning of knowledge. I've been saying that from the beginning. Kids want to know why. Wonder means you want to know the causes of things, right? 
For us to stop wondering as adults means somewhere we're dying. If we ever stop wondering until we're dead, something's already dying. We're meant to wonder, yeah? Does, does learning ever, should our learning ever stop for any of us? So what they're doing is harming the human soul in two directions. They're taking away the source of everything that could guide us, everything that could move us, and they're also discrediting, giving a minimizing the value of what goes on inside. It's only this. See it louder. Isn't that the reaction that Gaius and Titus are endorsing? Right. Right. The one that takes that circular. What am I missing, Karen? Mike, what you've got a question? No, they do endorse it, and Lewis is criticizing it for the reason that he's saying that the effect of that can only be bad. You've got a question. Come on. Here, let me go on for a minute and come back, unless you've got it. On the next page he says, even if it were granted that such qualities as sublimity were simply and solely projected onto things from our own emotions, yet the emotions which prompt the projection are the correlatives. They are all therefore almost the opposite of um, the qualities projected. The feelings which make a man call an object sublime are not sublime, but veneration, humility. If you're in the presence of something awesome, isn't the natural response humility or deference or reverence or... Can you imagine standing before God without falling to your knees in utter humility? Um, if this is sublime is to be reduced at all to a statement about the speaker's feelings, the proper translation would be, I have humble feelings. Yeah? If you're in the presence of a... I mean, there are times... Um, <laughs> I usually swear. I'm not going to... I'll go... When Susanna... Or, you know, sometimes then I'll watch an airplane taking off. and just It's just... It's amazing to watch. You know, that in a moment of, of amazement, you're just humbled to see something extraordinary like that. Um, Uh, yeah, yep, yep. Gratitude, humility. Um, if the view held by Gaius and Titus were consistently applied, it would lead to obvious absurdities. It would force them to maintain that you are contemptible. Means I have contemptible feelings. Wait, if somebody's contemptible, what should be our response? Huh? Oh, good. If somebody's doing something contemptible, let's, what, let's pick a concrete. Somebody come up with... Um, let's, say somebody's in an, let's say somebody's on a street and a young kid is in a hurry and he pushes away an old woman who's on the sidewalk. You know. Was that, is, can I use that? Is that contemptible? What's the natural response to that? Yeah. Wouldn't it be? Doing something wrong that's contemptible. Is what's going on in your heart contemptible? Yeah. 
No, no. No, I mean, the natural response is you want to say, stop it, don't do that. Um, um, at the bottom of 19, the pupils are left to do for themselves the work of extending the same treatment to all predicates of value. Anything we say about the world, we have to treat the same way. Okay? Their words, this is page 20, their words are that we appear to be saying something very important when in reality we are only saying something about our own feelings. He goes on to say that the effect of this finally over time will be, I'm going to exaggerate this, but it's going to be to dry up the heart. If there are no longer any sources of noble feelings, those things that would evoke noble feelings in us, what what will happen to our hearts? I'm hearing Christ go, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. God works through the heart more directly. If you take away the heart, what's left of the human being? Um, on page um, 21, he's continuing the argument and says, um, in their fourth chapter, they quote a silly advertisement of a pleasure cruise and proceed to inoculate their pupils against the sort of writing it exhibits. If they've already begun to take this position that if you're in the presence of something sublime, you're, o you're, only, um, you're only projecting on that thing your own feelings. You mean you say I have sublime feelings when you don't. Um, Implicitly, you're attacking reason and the emotions. Whatever your reason can grasp of something out there and whatever emotions that are appropriate to respond to it, okay? The advertisement tells us that those who buy tickets for this course will go across the Western Ocean where Drake of Devon sailed. So these are, um, you know, advertising companies doing all they can to promote a commercial enterprise. We all know them. They're exploiting. So they will play to all these old romances, you know, these things that um, draw people on with the assumption that there's no value in those things whatsoever. And there's a truth to that because so often commercial enterprises will exploit people. You won't find what you went hoping to find. It's a bad bit of writing, of course, a venal and pathetic exploitation of those emotions of awe and pleasure which men feel in visiting places that have striking associations with history or legend. If Gaius and Titus were to stick to their last and teach their readers, it was their business to put this advertisement side by side with good pieces of literature so that people could see the difference between them. But one was, okay, here, what's motivating Hopkins' Wreck of the Dutchland? Is that a piece of propaganda? Is he evangelizing? Here, seriously, is he evangelizing? Is that his motive? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Is he living the word of Christ, trying to bring that word out? Yes, he is. In love? I mean, I don't think he could be farther away from anything commercial or exploitative. So set one of those advertisements next to a good piece of writing, and what will you see? So he's saying one of the ways in which you practice literary criticism by putting a good thing next to a bad and trying to make clear what it is that makes that thing good. Um, so he says, 
um, at the bottom of 21, if, if they had used Johnson's Western Islands um, or the stories about the marathon, the, the Greek battle at Marathon, or Wordsworth's The Prelude, it's a long biographical poem and they're just sections that are stunning beauty, um, where Wordsworth, he says, they might have taken their place, that place in the prelude where Wordsworth describes how the antiquity of London first descended on his mind with weight and power, power growing under weight, a lesson which had laid such literature beside the advertisement and really discriminated the good from the bad would have been a lesson worth teaching. We did the Iliad, I mean, sorry, the Odyssey. I hope you all remember. Remember in the, in the Iliad when Virgil's describing Aeneas, after all of his journeys, all the failed attempts to found, he comes to Italy and discovers he's home. And he goes to visit Evander, and Evander is taking him around the forest, and Virgil writes with a sense, because remember, he's writing in contemporary Rome, where Rome is corrupt. The Colosseum, the senators, Rome is going to hell. But he's writing of that period when it was all virginal forest, when Saturn had appeared, and, and there was what he called this late, latent sense of gods that was always present in nature. And it's so clear that when Virgil wrote that, he was hoping that contemporary Romans would hear that because they were already becoming corrupt. Um, He says on 23, um, if you stay with Gaius and Titus, you're going to come away learning one thing. What he will learn quickly enough and perhaps indelibly is the belief that all emotions aroused by local association are in themselves contrary to reason and contemptible. He will have had no notion that there are two ways of being immune to such an advertisement, but it falls equally flat on those who are above it and those who are below it, on the man of real sensibility, on the mere trousered ape, who's never been able to conceive the Atlantic as anything more than so many million tons of salt water. Imagine a scientist who, who can only see tons of water or kilowatts or power or look at a star. Think about all the poets who've written poems on stars and imagine what a most scientists, not but most scientists, will look at a star and see potential energy when it's burned out. Or there are two men to whom we offer in vain a false leading article on patriotism and honor. One is the coward; the other is the honorable patriotic man. None of this is brought before the schoolboy's mind. What he does is he learns to debunk. He learns to put down because he learns there's nothing there. Fool that you are! Why are you getting so worked up? Get a hold of your emotions. Stuff them. Stuff your emotions. Um, can anybody put in their own, any of you, put in your own words what he's saying when he says, um, he will have no notion that there are two ways of being immune to such an advertisement that it falls equally flat on those who are above it and those below. Can anybody flush that out and give an example? What's Lewis saying there? There are two men on whom, if you're going to make an appeal to, let's say the Marines, if you're going to make an appeal to honor, let's say, right, you do something, um, there are two men on whom that appeal 
will be lost. One will be the man of honor, and one will be, um, let's say, a coward or somebody who doesn't take honors. Can anybody flesh that out at all? What's he saying? It's interesting to me that he, I mean, I, and I don't know if this is confusing to anybody, but I, 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 I hope we can get past the confusion. Because he says there's two ways of being immune. One, that it falls equally flat on those who are above and below, which suggests that those who are above are beyond it in some way, those who are it's To me, it's a little, for me, it's a little bit confusing. When he says there are two men to whom we offer in vain a false leading article in patriotism and honor, it's a little bit clear. One is the coward, the other is the honorable man. The honorable man, if he sees an appeal to honor, to war, let's say, nothing's lost on him. His whole heart will warm to that. But the man who's a coward will find every reason for not going to war, for debunking it. He'll say, why go to war? Are you kidding? For what? We're going to die. There'd be nothing there worth dying for. Um, so, um, and I want to be clear, because that's, that's a little bit different from Aristotle, because I think he's got Aristotle in his mind. When Aristotle says that the, that the virtue, virtue is a mean, it's between two extremes. Aristotle would say virtually the same thing that Lewis is saying here, but there would be three people, not two, because Aristotle would say, courage is the virtue you use when you're facing danger, right? So if you're facing danger, there's going to be one man on whom that whole trouble is lost. It's the virtuous man. He will go into it. If you watch the Sniper or watch good movies, you'll see courageous people dealing with courageous things. The man who's above it, if you're using Aristotle, will be rash. He will go into it for the wrong reason. So even though he looks courageous, he's not. Yeah? And... Um, how will the courageous man look to the coward? To the coward, the courageous man will look rash. To the rash man, the courageous man will look cowardly. It's only the virtuous man on whom all this stuff is lost because he'll go into it virtuously, okay? Is that clear? Um, 
now what so part of what he's concerned with here is that we're already well into an educational system in which the hearts of kids are being taken away. I'm going to, I've got to control myself right now because I want to stay focused on. But if that was true almost a century ago, what's going on today? I mean, I'm with some, I, I don't want to go there, but just please give this some thought. He's talking about something in 1940. All of us grew up when Suzanne and I went to school what he's talking about was still in place. You went to school and you were initiated into a way of life and it involved learning in different fields. Today what's going on is a kind of indoctrination. You go into school and teachers are telling you what to believe with respect to mostly things that have to do with sex. So there's an ideology. They're, they're not initiating you into a long past with a rich tradition so that you're inheriting. By the way, I mean, I hope it's clear. What have we been doing for the time that we've been together since we started? It's to recover that tradition. Um, so what he's, what he's talking about is so far progressed. If, we, if we're not doing something about it, either we're blind or we're not sticking to our, you know, principles because. Think about the fact that he was before our time, and we, looking back on when we were kids in our education, would say it was better than it is now. Then that's a real lie. Yeah. Because he would have gone further back. Um, he introduces. Um, Another figure on 24 called Orbelius, and I don't want to go into him. What he does with animals is the same thing that Gaius and Titius do with anything, um, except their responses to animals, because of course you can't romanticize animals on page 24. Um, he's debunking writing on horses or animals. Um, the willing servants of the early colonists of Australia. So he's a modern liberal utopian whose way of looking at things is in terms of um, a tyrannical form of colonialization. England and Europe was, were colonializing the world and to help bring about their colonizing they would use horses. So he's bringing in horses indirectly as a way of criticizing what was going on during this period of colonization. Um, a silly bit of writing on horses where these animals are praised as the willing servants of the early colonialists in Australia and he falls into the same trap of Rukush, Schneebnir, and the weeping horses of Achilles and the war horse of the book of Job, Bear Rabbit, you can go on and on. All he has to say is what's the big deal about these things? You're just being sentimental where you shouldn't. So some attachment to animals is being undermined. And remember, I mean, I think, because there are lots of people today in our world, because remember the whole principle here is learning to order our emotions to be ordinate, to love each thing as we should. There are some people who love animals today more than humans. Lewis would not approve of that by his very principle. But he's talking about those people who, who debunk animals and find nothing to feel about them. I don't know if you remember Achilles, but at the end of the Iliad, 
Achilles' horses prophesy his death. It's a touching moment. It's as, all, it's as if all of nature is responding to something going on. Um, so he concludes the, this section of chapter 1 on these, two, these figures, Tyson, Gaius, and um, Orbilius, with these comments. He says that they're trying to do their best they can, and they're mistaken without knowing it. But then he says in 25, there may be another possibility. What I have called presuming on their concurrence in a certain traditional system of values, the trousered ape and the urban blockhead, I love those, may be precisely the kind of man they really wish to produce. If you don't have an image of you of something noble in man, the way you're going to see him is debunking. What is going on in our world today that holds up man created in the image of God? We have been doing this in our when we did the Divine Comedy. We went through the Paradiso over and over again. I kept stressing. The, one of the things that Dante is trying to remind us of is the great glory of man. But as he's moving through the heavens and he's seeing the glory of God's creation, the one thing that stands out in his glory is man. Today we're a product of an ape, we're a product of blind forces, we don't understand. What's noble to man today? If you take that away, how can it produce anything but trousered apes, urban blockheads? He says they, um, they may really want this. They may really hold that the ordinary human feelings about the past or animals or large waterfalls are contrary to reason and contemptible and ought to be eradicated. 26, he says, there's three things to take into consideration that these men have not done. This is moving towards his conclusion. I doubt whether Gaius and Titus have really planned under cover of teaching English to propagate their philosophy. I think they've slipped into a mistake. And he says there's three reasons. One is he says that practicing literary criticism is hard. Trying to show what's good about literature. If any of you have tried to teach literature, <laughs> you've been putting up with me for a long time. If any of you have tried to do it, you would know that it's not easy. I mean, there's lots of teachers who teach literature in order to, as a way of getting into their ideology. It'll be Marxist or feminist or, you know, it'll, I mean, those are the modern filters. So even though they're teaching literature, they're passing literature through an ideological lens, Marxism, feminism, gender studies, whatever it is. They're not reading literature. They're using, they're exploiting literature to promote an ideological political end. Our educational system is in such trouble today. So one is they don't know how to practice literary criticism because it's so hard. That's his first reason. In the second place, bottom of 26, I think Gaius and Titus may have honestly misunderstood the pressing educational need of the moment. They see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda. We live in a commercial world. 90% of the stuff that we see on television is propaganda. It's commercial stuff designed to get us to do something. Propaganda means, here, I'm so glad for the bump here. Propaganda means um, you're presenting something in order to get you to do something. You've been hearing me say from the beginning 
That's not what's going on in literature. In literature, we enter into the beauty, the goodness, the truth of that thing in itself. That poem. If it reveals a truth about the world outside, it's just a graver truth. But in that moment, we're experiencing the beauty, the truth. When I, I hope, when I'm reading Hopkins, the wreck, the wreck of the Dutchland, that when I read it, everybody's in that moment. We're not on the ship. We're not in Hopkins study, although we're both places. We're hearing, it's like Anne talking about a, if you, if you hear an opera or a concert or, you know, but in that moment, you're experiencing beauty and truth and goodness. Um, um, they think because the world is swayed by propaganda, they've learned from tradition that youth is sentimental. They conclude that the best thing they can do to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. My own experience as a teacher tells an opposite tale. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vagarity. If you thought about the kids coming out of education today, do you have the sense that if they're going to feel an emotion, it's going to be, it's going to be an activist emotion to take a political stand to overturn something. They're not going to love literature for itself. Let's say if they're or they'll come out thinking, for what? What's the vet? The, there's no meaning to life. Why bother? The whole purpose here, he, for everyone, pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. How do we do that? How do we, how do we help our kids to continue to wonder? to ask questions, to engage them in questions, to say why, to keep learning. You know, I, I mean, I, for, I, I just wish parents built why, the word why, into their evening discussions, but it was just bedrock. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. Feed my sheep. Let's say it again. Feed my sheep. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving them, we make them more susceptible to the wolf when he comes. But there's a third and a profounder reason for the procedure which Gaius and Titus adopt. But to get to it, he has to look at a, um, a characteristic that's typical of our time. 28. He says, up until recent times, we lived in a world in which there was always an objective reality to things. The Jewish law, God, Plato's good, the Tao, you can go on and on. The Rut, 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 I think is the Indian pronunciation. There was always a way, and everybody living was aware of that way and tried to conform to it, to live, whether you were in India or Asia or Africa, you know, wherever it was, the Jewish people, there's a word, um, I put it in my notes, you'll see it. It's a way for the Jewish. It embodied all the laws of the Jewish people. They couldn't go through a day without being aware that they were in a way. Um, because that was so, they could say they were in conformity with that way and were being good or they were slipping, doing something wrong. But they had a way of evaluating themselves, making a judgment. 
if you take that away by what do kids judge things? The reason why Coleridge agreed with the tourists who called the cataract sublime and disagreed with the other one um, was of course that he believed inanimate nature to be such that certain responses could be more could be just or ordinate, appropriate or inappropriate. A certain fact of nature merited a certain response. If you see an old if you see somebody pushing an old woman down, the appropriate response is stop it. Don't do that. Um, if you take that objective reality away so what do we turn to help us make a choice at any moment of our life or what we're to do or, or what we're to feel? Outrage, anger, gratitude, gladness. And by the way, just to make this clear, and I've said this before, you know that, I mean, in our, in, we live in a bourgeois world. The one thing a bourgeois world dislikes is anger. They don't want people getting angry because it's going to upset their ordered things. We've gone over this before. Remember the very it all begins with the Iliad and Achilles' anger. Anger is not a sin. Rage, wrath is a sin. Anger is the rectifying virtue. It's the thing we call on when something that we love is going to be harmed, we call on to stop. We call on it to help ourselves in need or to stop somebody else when they're threatening. So, and we live in an age that makes anger always bad. It's often bad. It's often not bad. The question is, what does something warrant? What should be the appropriate response? Gratitude? If you're in the presence of something terrifying, what should be the appropriate response? Fear. <laughs> Tell your children, don't go out in the street. Be afraid. A car might, you know, I mean, these are sort of basic. Sorry, go Tell her she got an F for missing tonight for me. Yeah. You're the other one. <laughs> I tell the other one. She's in a leadership retreat. Just, I'm kidding. Just tell her, say hello to her. Say hello to her. What age? What age group is it? So, I mean, she's, she was a freshman this year, so college-age students. Yeah. She said at the same time, there's this vengeful indignation toward anything that is actually the truth. Actually what? That is actually the truth. So it's an indifference toward just, like, an indifference toward people, an indifference toward anything that's not related to themselves. But when it comes to things that are actually true, there's this rage against it that comes up. I mean, it's a sort of product of, I mean, we know that that's what's happening today. What? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Let's finish, because I want I been promising to finish on time and I'm getting better but we're doing well what did he say no 
Should, I didn't come back to you quick. I don't want to. Did you? No, you had something. Earlier you had that question. Are you, did it get? You are? Okay. I have something in relation to Go ahead. You know, we were talking on how we've broken the ways of communicating, especially with the younger generations, you know. But that's it, because, I mean, when you try to make them think, they don't want to think. You know? Things are like they are. You don't, you know. Right. As soon as you bring something different, they get very defensive. Yep. 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 God, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, part of me is sort of sorry to bring this up because, it, I mean, it's, all of us look back in retrospect, you know, and regret things. I mean, it seems to me it's inescapable in life. You could be a good parent and still look back with regret. But in our, to put this more broadly, when you take away the supports of a culture, those things that would support virtue, when you take those away so that our weaknesses are left by themselves, then things get worse. So when you're, you know, just talking, if you, if you think about what kids are going through today and try to picture what's going to happen to them or who they're going to be 15, 20 years from now, and that's not just a product of what's going on. I mean, a household is so important today. But if you think about a culture at large and apply what I'm saying, if you take away the support for virtue or goodness in a culture, traditional values, and the weaknesses are left on their own, or they even have the support of things that encourage weaknesses or bad, then the problems you're looking at, the country that we're in now is not the country that it was 75 years ago. Culturally, what's going on is, is hurting everybody, and, and in some sense, most of all young people, because instead of having the ability to carry forward something good, the encouragement is to tear it down, to do away with, sorry, but Bob, sorry. Yeah, yes. Well, my answer to that is mom and dad. I mean, mom and dad should have taken off. When all this stuff is really funny, I mean, it's too late because I'm, I think I'm among the oldest here, but when all this started, I can remember when our kids were entering their teen years and, you know, kids were going around with those iPods or whatever, and there was an answering stuff on the phone, and I said, not in this family. It's just, you know, the kids have grown up with that. And when I look at that whole tendency to turn in on yourself with all this stuff. It was iPod, whatever it was, I don't remember the name, but now it's a tablet, a game, a TV, it's, um, God, I mean, mom and dad, I mean, really, the answer to this is mom and dad cutting this and saying, you're not gonna like me for doing this, but, you know, here, we've gotta finish.
he 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 introduces the romantic poet Shelley because of one of his images. He says he's he's just repeating this um, principle that um, that the problem of taking away the objective reality of things outside of us is we have no longer have a way of adjusting our feelings so that we can learn to have proper feelings to love the way that we should. And he gives the example of Shelley. He said, having compared the human sensibility to Aeolian lyre, goes on to add that it differs from a lyre in having the power of internal adjustment whereby it can accommodate its chords to the motions of that which strikes them. He is assuming the same belief. Shelley could, not have, could only have written that because he grew up at a time when there was an objective reality outside and you learn to attune your feelings to it. He goes on to say in the next page, um, feelings by themselves are illogical. By themselves, you know, they're not good or bad, they're there. But we've got to learn to adjust our emotions um, so that they're appropriate to whatever, is, whatever it is we're responding to. The top of 29, when the age, he says, you raise kids this way at the bottom of 28. All things are made to be yours and you are made to prize them according to their value. Augustine defines virtue as ordo amoris, the ordinate condition of the affections in which every object is accorded that kind and degree of love which is appropriate to it. Aristotle says, aim of education is to make the pupil like and dislike what he ought. When the age for reflective thought comes, the pupil who's been thus trained in ordinate affections, that is to learn to love what he should and hate what he should, when reason comes, he'll have the support of reason. If you don't and you let emotions get out of control, when reason comes, what are you going to have? You're going to have a reason. You're going to have a, a kid who will never not have a reason for what he's doing, and nothing of what he does will have ordinate emotions. Was that clear? Is that clear? Okay. Because that was complicated that I got that out. Is that clear? Right? If you teach a child to love what he should and hate what he should, when reason comes, reason, reason will actually be more vital. It'll have the, better love. If you let the emotions go and you don't do anything to help your kids learn to control their emotions or order them to love what they should or not, when reason comes, what's that kid going to do with his reason? He's going to use his reason to justify every wrong emotion he's got. That's the situation we're in. In the Republic, the well-nurtured youth is one who would see most clearly what was amiss. Remember, the whole point of Plato's Republic was, remember the ordering of the soul. You all... God. It's been so long since I've done this. Sorry, God. Wow. Getting worse and worse. Remember um, Plato's image of the soul. We've done this so many times. Um, reason and the appetites or desires, the passions. Remember the Plato's image was of a charioteer. Here's a chariot and he's got two horses and he's driving the charioteer. One horse is black and one horse is white. The problem with the soul is 
Um, how do you control the appetites, the desires? Reason controls these by means of this middle element. There's a white horse and a black horse. The only way you can bring that black horse under control is by a white horse, something noble. So spiritedness is a love of good things, beauty, truth, you know, honor. Spiritedness is a love of physical things that overwhelms us sometimes. Drink too much, you know, whatever it is. Sex, I mean, all the things that, you know, we all struggle with. Um, and Plato's, remember the conclusion, I've gone over this before. Um, the reason that work is so important is because he makes clear there is an order to the soul. Any political regime that's out of tune with the soul will become destructive. Right? If you're making of the human being something it isn't or treating a human in a way you shouldn't, if you're taking away its freedoms or encouraging wrong things, what will happen to that regime? A regime that does not have an understanding of the human soul is destined to destroy itself. History is showing it again and again and again. Um, Twenty-nine to the bottom. In early Hinduism, that conduct in men which we um, can be called good consists of conformity to participation in the rata, the rata, that great ritual or pattern of nature. Um, Plato said that the good was beyond existence. Wordworth that through virtue the stars were strong. The Indian masters say that the gods themselves are born of the rata and obey it. The Chinese also speak of a great thing called the Tao. It is really, it is reality beyond all predicates. It's God. I mean, that's our understanding of God. Any predicate we make of him won't do because God's beyond all those things. So there is this way, this goodness um, that we've always existed in. Um, it's helped us. Um, 31. He's going to use this word, the Tao, now. Um, in place of all these other things. It can be the Jewish good or um, the other things. He says at the top of 31, but what is common to them all is something we cannot neglect. It's the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things we are. Go down. Because our approvals and disapprovals are thus recognitions of objective value or responses to an objective order, therefore emotional states can be in harmony with reason or out of harmony with reason. No emotion is in itself a judgment. In that sense, all emotions and sentiments are illogical, but they can be reasonable or unreasonable as they conform to reason or fail to conform. So what's happened is we, we have created a world, and, and it's interesting, we've t taken away all value judgments and left person in their subjective inner selves, projecting whatever they want in the world, and the whole modern world is that way, and, and so the modern world say, you're free to do whatever you want, um, be because that's the nature of the world, unless you take the position that there's an objective reality outside of you. 
If you happen to be Christian or Jewish, or then you're going to run into a problem because you're going to say, there is a truth, there is something true. And then we've got a war, which is what we've got today. And the interesting thing is those people who say there is no objective reality, who are the conditioners, the one who condition, who create this new world, now see themselves as conditioners because they're the ones who know they're the ones you should follow. If you don't follow them, you've got to cancel culture. Is that clear? That's the situation. So he said, 33, when a Roman father went to his son and said, Dolce, a sweet death, that you should not be ashamed to die for your country. He was expressing a traditional value that had always passed on. And he wanted the son to know that so the son would be less afraid when he's facing dangers. Page 34, we're going to the end. What we've created now is this schism between two entirely different ways of looking at the world and teaching. 34, the middle of the page. Where the old initiated, the new merely conditions. The old dealt with its pupils as grown birds, dealing with young birds when they teach them to fly. The new deals with them more as poultry keeper deals with young birds, making them thus or thus for purposes of which the birds know nothing. <laughs> They're going to cook them on, or train them. In a word, the old was a kind of propaganda, men transmitting manhood to men. The new Right. The old, thanks, Doc. In a word, the old was a kind of propagation, passing something on, transmitting. By the way, it was a form of translation. Language is at its core. You had to translate this thing to pass it on. How do you? And by, by the way, this is the fundamental truth of the Iliad or the Aeneid. The danger for Aeneas is you just cannot take the pass and literally impose it. You can't do it. You. I hope that's clear. If you do, it's dead. Somehow you have to take that past and translate it, renew it. The whole point of Christianity is renewal, renewal, renewal in Christ. So it involves a translation, a use of words to take something old, to protect it and renew it. I've been saying this about the epic since we began. Every epic has as its center. What moves it is taking the past forward and redeeming it as he went. The poet takes the past, carries it forward, and redeems it. Every one of us have, I think, most or most of us, have things we didn't like about our parents. We still have to carry that past forward and redeem it. And our kids are going to have to pick up that burden <laughs> too, even if they don't want. Um, so what we're faced with today is this tendency of debunking, of trashing the past to make it worthless. So that burden is gone. Everything will be, if we can just get rid of the past, we can recreate the world in whatever way we want. It's as if we've never learned from it and those people who hold that don't even see that they're gonna make things worse. We don't learn from our mistakes. Um, so, the task for all of us, bottom of 35, we were told this all along, long ago by Plato. As the king governs by his executive 
reason. So reason in man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. The head rules the body through the chest, the seat of magnanimity, of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. Take that away and what you've got are men without chests. The most important task for our age is to help make our kids brave, good, um, to love. He says back on 35, in battle it's not syllogism, it's not our heads that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. It's our hearts. People will always have reasons for doing what they do. Will they always have good hearts? So the task of the moment is to help develop good sentiments in the hearts of our children. That should be the primary task of teachers, he's saying. Indeed, it would be strange if they were. Preserving a devotion to truth and nice sense of intellectual honor cannot be long maintained without the aid of a sentiment which Gaius and Titus could, could debunk as easily as any other. It's not excess of thought, but defect of fertile and generous emotion that marks them out. Their heads are no bigger than ordinary. It's the atrophy of the chest beneath that makes them seem so. They seem to have big heads. They do only because their hearts have shrunk. And all this time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. Kids go off to college to be smart. How many of them go off to college to become better human beings, more able to love, to deal with the will? It's really interesting. If you look across the campus at what's happening to the wills of students, football games, parties, alcohol, drugs, yeah, I mean, they go to class, but what's going on in education to help kids develop good wills? And all the time we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism, self-sacrifice, creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the Geldings be fruitful. Any questions about this first chapter? It, I hope it's clear, it's pretty clear, yeah, what the problem is. This, this principle of subjectivity um, that the world ceases to have had the meaning that used to have for us. It's a wandering planet. Who knows where it's going? There are all these evolutionary processes. We're blind to them. We can't see them. We've lost a sense of God, of any meaning to the universe. We've lost a sense of some connectedness between us and our universe. It's whatever's going inside of us that makes this meaning. Any questions about this first chapter? What I'd like to do going forward is I'd like to take a chapter a day. So next week we'll do the middle chapter, because there's a lot going on in Lewis. And, and the next one is going to involve some lot. By the way, <laughs> it's going to ask everybody to do some serious thinking. He's, he's going to be using, what's an enthymeme? 
What's an enthymeme? First question on quiz next week. An enthymeme, in Aristotle's rhetoric, I think there's 21 or 22 or 20, I can't remember. It's, I used to teach it when I was teaching writing, but enthymemes are different ways of arguing. I'll tell you what, I'll put, the, I'll put my list of enthymemes on the C.S. Lewis just for you to look at. It would be good for all of you who are teaching because you could teach your children how to, th really, I'm not kidding. I'm not, and by the way, no, you can teach yourselves. I loved it because I, I realized I could learn to think and as a teacher. Because you take that for granted in school, you just you do what you do, but it's Aristotle's enthymemes. They're different ways of structuring an argument. Very simple. Enthymeme. I'm going to send it, Mary. I'll, I'll include it. It'll be in our, it'll be in our folder. Huh? E-N-T-H-Y-M-E-M-E. -E -E. Enthymeme. Next chapter is going to, is going to take something because we're going to have to do some serious logical thinking in it. So, and I don't want anybody copying out. I want everybody to be tough on this. Any questions or comments? Mary, go. It's a sad condition of our time, Mary. It's just, it's, you know, it's just, it's just, I mean, it, it's so much, I want to say, and I'm going to say this honestly, I mean, just, it's us. It's our world. It's us. It's all this is in us. But, I mean, um, Christ said, you know, we have to start with ourselves. All sins, I think if you got my note to you, the, I hope you got the thing about the shooting, but he says the sins come from our hearts. They're Something's wrong with us. This is our world. We'd start with ourselves. Um, and, and remember, that was Plato's. How can you be just? How can you learn to be just to another and give what's due to another when you haven't learned to order your own soul? We won't be able to bring to others what we should until we order our own souls. That was Plato 2,500 years ago. Christ came 400 years after him and said the same thing spiritually. This is our world. I hope I, I mean, I, I hope I've not misled you. What I said earlier was my attempt to sort of bring you all to battle, to take seriously these are things we, but we have to begin with ourselves. So, okay. Um, keep us in your prayers, please. I'd be grateful for your prayers. I, um, um, see you next week. Okay.